Good morning. If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. If you haven't got a Bible, no worries. We'll be uh, removing that shortly um, and, uh, and putting... <laughs> it's a joke. Um, and we'll be putting the uh, passage up. So great to see you all. If you're a visitor here, and I know there are a few visitors here this morning, welcome. Great to have you with us. If you've been doing our Alpha sessions, uh, well done. And if you've joined us this morning, great to have you too. Um, just to catch you up, if you like, um, we've been looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of one of his followers called Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. And in many ways, it's written not so much as a historic record, although it is one. Um, it was written as a, as a revolutionary pamphlet declaring that a new king has come. Listen up, everyone, Matthew's saying, a king that will defeat your biggest enemies, death and disunity and injustice and guilt and condemnation and the rotten sin that is destroying our world. We had a glimpse of that just in that story, how Jesus can turn rotten sin into salvation for his glory. Jesus, the new king, Matthew's telling us, will bring love and righteousness and healing and joy and restoration through his followers, like Donna, like me, like you. Come the revolution. Come the revolution. And so he starts, Jesus, with 12 close friends. And as we follow their journeys together, we realize that they are not the great men that we'd expect to start such a world-changing revolution with. That's why Jesus has got his hands over his eyes. These early disciples are often portrayed as bumbling idiots quarreling amongst one another, not having a clue, regularly getting the wrong end of the stick, and not behaving with the love and mercy that Jesus displayed. Sounds like church to me. <laughs> it was, if this was my revolutionary pamphlet, if I'm honest, I probably would have cut all those bits out. <coughs> Last week, Simon spoke about one of the biggest betrayals by Judas. This morning is about Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, denying he ever knew Jesus. This denial wasn't taken out either. In fact, it's described in all of the Gospels in dreadful detail, heartbreaking detail. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the point of this revolutionary pamphlet was not to shout about, the ex about extraordinary people, but rather to worship an extraordinary God, their extraordinary God, our revolutionary king, the one who transforms us through our failings. So let's read Matthew 26, starting with verses 31 to 35, and then we'll go straight to 69 to 75, Peter's denial. Then Jesus told them, 
This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, because Jesus will rise again, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, something his chest, even if it all falls away on account of you, I will never, never disown you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, Peter, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, silly girl, he said. Then he went out of the gateway where another servant girl saw him and, he, and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man, a promise. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I do not know that man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you don't, don't remove the difficult stuff, that you acknowledge we're in a world that is hurting, in denial, messed up, problematic, but actually this world is your world where you are the king and you are putting all things back together correctly, that you are large and in charge, that you know the details. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we look at this passage this morning, that we will get a glimpse of how, how you are the one who puts the jigsaw back together, how you are the one who's making all things new. And like Donna's story, you are the one in the midst of horridness. You are making, making, you are bringing healing and beauty back to each and every one of us so that we can be a light to others. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first part of this reading is actually during the Last Supper that Simon was talking about last week. Here Peter declares to Jesus, as we said, thumping his chest, even if it means my life, I will never disown you, Jesus. Yet, by verse 70, he's done what he said he wouldn't do. This passage describes an absolutely broken man in the profoundest possible way. And yet hear this, within just weeks, within weeks, he was poised to be one of the most influential leaders in the history of the world. That's a fact. Today, friends, I want to unpack the power of promises. How promises make us who we are how they can, and how, how they can shape us for good. You see, promises 
are powerful agents of change. Peter discovered that in the midst of weeping bitterly on the night of Jesus' trial. And I believe this morning God wants us to discover the power of promises too. So firstly, I'm going to, there's only two points, kind of. Firstly, promises make us. Promises make us. Without promises, without commitment, without the willingness to give yourself to this and deny that, to limit your options and to hold yourself to a course of action you stick to no matter what. That's a commitment. That's a promise. Without promises, there is no identity and there is no community. And both of those are key agents of change that God the Holy Spirit molds us through to be more like Him. That's where we're going today. Let me explain. One, promises shape our identity. When Peter is beating his chest and says all the things to Jesus and later on denies him, he, listen to what it says. He says, he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Why? Because he didn't know who he was. Was he the Peter of verse 35? Even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Or was he the Peter of verse 74? He swore to them, I don't know Jesus. Which is it? Thumping chest, Peter? Or I never knew him, Peter. You see, like Peter, we live in a culture that is, as Paul said earlier, so shaped by feelings and fears and desires and our mood that it's difficult to hold fast to our promises. The modern mantra, if you like, is actually, I need to find myself. I need to find out who I really am. I need to get out from under all responsibilities, all promises, all obligations, and all covenants to find out what I really feel like. And then and only then can I be who I really am. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But it's rubbish. We've been brainwashed, Jubilee. If who I am at my very core is primarily reliant on my deepest feelings, I'm on a trajectory like Peter's, downhill, weeping bitterly. Why? Because firstly, just talking about me, my feelings are all over the place, depending on my circumstances at the time. And those circumstances will always change. Never more than, never more than now are we realizing that with war and pandemics and cost of living crisis and persecution across the world shaking us. Not only that, though, these feelings are often in conflict with each other. As a GP, I hear my patients saying they want the security having to have, of having somebody who will always uh, be there for them, but they also want the freedom to play the field. They say, I want the security of having money, but they also want the freedom of an unstructured life without the disciplines of work. I praise God, I mean this, I praise God for rotors, amen, standing orders and community group schedules and uh, community group WhatsApp reminders. Hallelujah, praise God for them because despite what I'm feeling, they make me commit to serving the church, being relationally accountable and giving regularly, even when I don't feel like it. 
Peter wanted to be the leader of the greatest ever Christian movement. But in this situation, he also wanted to live. Sometimes it's as serious as that jubilee. We cannot live a life of integrity if it's all about my glands or my feelings or my circumstances, public opinion. Identity jubilee is that unchangeable core that is always the same. That's why you are your commitments. That's how promises shape your identity. In the play A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More is being told he's going to burn at the stake unless he recants of what he believes and the promises he holds fast to. And his daughter Meg says, Oh, please, Father, can you just go back on your word so we can have you back? He looks at her and he says, When a man takes an oath, Meg, he's holding his own self in his own hands, like water. And if he opens his fingers, then he need not hope to find himself again. You are your promises, and if you aren't, you'll never know who you are, and nobody else will either, because there is nothing that you always are. Your identity is what you always are. And promises hold that together. Jubilee beat Peter is weeping bitterly because he opens his hands and what he was is instantly gone. Promises shape our identity, but two, they also build community. What do I mean by that? Well, see what happens when Peter denies Jesus three times. The rooster crows. He knows he's failed Jesus. What does he do then? It says he went outside and wept bitterly. Outside. He wants to go away from everyone. He wants to be alone. Why? Because breaking promises also separates us. When I worked in a GP practice just down the road here, actually, where all the patients were heroin addicts, I noticed there was a real inability to keep promises in this group of people. In fact, I believe it was a symptom of their impoverishment which resulted so much in broken relationships and friendships and therapeutic connections, the things we were helping them with. They were alone, isolated, on the outside, as it were, even in the midst of a crowd often. Sadly, we live in a world that is all about me rather than all about each other narrowing my options for the benefit of others goes against the flow of many people christian community as we see in the bible isn't a nurture, isn't nurtured and formed that way society world unity family life work relationships all of them flourish and fruit in the midst of dependability promise making and commitments that we stick to Breaking promises always, always results in weeping bitterly on the outside. In marriage, sticking to those promises, those wedding day commitments through thick and thin, forges strong relationships that are able to handle the storms. There's always storms. When the going gets tough or temptation strikes in my spiritual walk, I go back 
to my baptism promises. I'm a new creation. My old life has been buried. God the Holy Spirit empowers me to live out His new life. By the grace of God, I am set free to get right back on track. Militant about grace. Always. When I'm thinking, I'm not sure where this church is going in the middle of the night at three o'clock in the morning. Are we on track? Can I sacrifice my money and my time for this? Is the cost too great? I come back to God's revelation of His church and His values and His words and His prophetic promises to bring the joy news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, like we just heard in that story. The great commission to bring uh, the joy news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere, or Isaiah 61, or our values. We rejoice, we commit, we rejoice, we welcome, we inspire, we go. That's the prophetic call of God that I've signed up to Jubilee and you have signed up to. That's the kind of church that God is molding us together, even if Gavin sometimes gets up to my nose. No, he doesn't really. But these things happen, you see. Promises build community. Promises create identity. Let your yes be a yes and your no, no. These are the commitments that make us jubilee. Second point. Sounds tough, all this, doesn't it? It is. So how do we make promises? How do we keep our promises? Right at the very beginning of the book, we see the biggest promise break ever. In Genesis 3, which describes the tragic fall of humanity as Adam and Eve declare their disobedience and disregard and dishonor of God, the breaking of promises, wanting glory for themselves rather than glory of God. Since this fall, promise-keeping has been tragically scarred. We find it difficult. So how does the gospel of Jesus Christ help us make those promises before God? Well, I think the answer comes through a different encounter, actually, in the Bible that we read in another disciple, John's account of Jesus in chapter 21, John 21. This is where the risen Jesus, after his death and resurrection, he rises again compassionately comes back to this very same Peter in the midst of all of his brokenness and shame. This Jesus who Peter betrayed comes to restore him by asking him very th three very famous questions, doesn't he? And they're all the same. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Three do you love me's for his three denials. To which Peter emphatically replies, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. To which Jesus replies, Then feed my sheep, buddy. Go and build my church. You are still the rock of promise. That's the God we worship. For thumping chest Peter, that was a phenomenal encounter of love. From then on, actually, Peter becomes a promise keeper. In fact, to the point that ultimately he will be persecuted, ridiculed, and crucified 
just like his master. But he's learnt the secret now of keeping promises, even when circumstances changed. He's learnt that thumping his chest and relying on his own ability and willpower to keep promises, big promises, will ultimately fail. Hear this. He has learned to trust the risen promise keeper, the best promise keeper ever, who will never, ever fail him. What are Jesus' promises to us that so transforms our promise keeping? Oh, you know, there's hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of them, actually. The Bible is full of them. That's why we need to read it regularly. That's why every year our friends, uh, Michael and Mabel Akosha, invite their church to 21 days of prayer and fasting, pressing into primarily the never-changing promises of God. But I'm going to give you three today, just three. Firstly, Jesus, is, Jesus promises to judge the whole earth. How does that help? You see, knowing that makes your promise-keeping easier, actually. If your promise-keeping results in other people taking advantage of you, which it can do, if it results in you getting sacked or, or you losing out, or if it makes your circumstances worse, then we'll be reluctant to keep them, won't we? Sounds reasonable. But Jesus promises that he'll judge the whole earth with righteousness. Jesus will ultimately have the final say no matter what. You can know that for sure, Jubilee. Nothing will escape Jesus. You don't need to worry about the outcome of your promise keeping because the outcome of his promise of justice will always make things right, either on this side of Jesus' return or the, or the other. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, in keeping with his promises, promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what we have to look forward to. Jesus promises, that, promises you that he will judge the whole earth. Jesus also promises Peter that he'll die for him. The promise, that promise is for you and me too. Jesus, against all his human feelings, went to the cross for you and me. Not my will, but your will be done, he said to his father. That's my promise. I'm going to do it. He drinks the cup of judgment and wrath for all the stuff you got, attitudes and behaviors and promise breaking that we see all around us, out there and sometimes in here. And he did this. And, and as he did this, his identity as the sinless son of man was shattered on the cross. As he took on your scars, your shame, your condemnation, your dishonor and disregard and disobedience, he went to the very depths of hell for you. And not only that, he lost the joyful community that he had enjoyed since the beginning of ta time in the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, always united on one, united as one, lost on the cross as he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
On the cross, Jesus is being treated as the promise breaker, even though he kept every single promise, so that you and me, the real promise breakers, are set free to live life, lives of promise keeping. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you are Peter, whether you know it or not. And yes, this Jesus, God himself, still wants you. How much does he want you? He wants you that much. And finally, Jesus' third promise. He promises to forgive you no matter what. Through repentance and faith, each time we mess up, we can call on him and all that he has achieved on the cross to forgive us. That's what we've been learning and seeing through countless encounters on Alpha, haven't we? Your past, present, or future cannot separate you from the love of God. His grace is big enough for all of it. His promise-keeping on the cross by far covers all of our promise-breaking, your promise-breaking, my promise-breaking. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson blood, they shall become white as wool, Isaiah tells us. Jesus loves you, Jubilee. If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you. Jesus calls you by name. He's closer to you than the very clothes you're wearing as Kobe expressed in his prayers last week so powerfully. And by his Spirit, this is true right now, always and forever. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you've done or whatever has been done to you, Jesus promises, I will never leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of him, God Jesus. Let's end with this beautiful quote. If the band can come up, that would be great. Let's end with this beautiful quote from John Piper, describing the greatest promise of all. And by hearing it, let us have peace, Jubilee, that we are in good hands. Jesus' hands are never going to do that and let the water fall through. He is unchangeable and strong. This is the quote, as long as the world lasts, Jesus will be with us in this world. This is the loving comfort, Jubilee, the one who has put all his enemies under his feet and has died for, her, for us and risen for us and triumphed over sin and guilt and condemnation and suffering and death and Satan and, all, and who has all authority in heaven and on earth. This one, this one comforts us by promising that he will be with us continually to the end of the age to do us good and to bring us safely 
to everlasting joy. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the promise keeper. We thank you for the cross.